0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So when the book of Psalms was first compiled, and all these songs and compositions were all brought together into one book, Psalm 1 was not actually one of the Psalms. The book started with Psalm 2. That was the first psalm, and they numbered off from there. But Psalm 1 was not actually counted as a psalm itself. Psalm 1 functioned like an introduction to the whole book. So it stood apart from the rest of the psalms, and it formed this, this introduction that set the scene for the rest of the whole book of psalms. It was like the gateway into the psalms. If you want to approach the psalms, you've got to go through Psalm 1 like the doorway to the Psalms. So it functioned a little bit like an overture in a musical. If you've seen a musical with an orchestra, you know before anyone comes out on stage, the orchestra plays the overture. And it's it's like a medley of different musical themes and motifs. And then those themes and motifs reappear throughout the musical. Those are the songs that you hear and you get them in the overture at the beginning. And Psalm 1 is is a bit like a, a biblical overture. For the whole book of Psalms, it contains these themes, these motifs that then crop up again and again and again and again throughout the book of Psalms. And in particular, Psalm 1 deals with this theme of two types of people. These two people that represent two ways of living, two contrasting ways of living, two contrasting types of people. And it refers to them in verse 6 as the wicked and the righteous. And I know those words can sound quite harsh and severe and old fashioned, they've got all sorts of baggage, but these are the two types of people the psalm is talking about the, the wicked on the one hand and the righteous on the other hand. And the best way to think about these people is really the righteous person is the one whose life is facing toward God. Okay, so they are orientated towards Him and they are living toward God. I got a friend who I catch up with from time to time. And he's on a really interesting spiritual journey at the moment. He's kind of been this hybrid between Buddhism and Christianity. And he's sort of been exploring both of them. And sometimes he's been more Buddhist than Christian. And then other times he's been more Christian than Buddhist. And we have these interesting conversations. And he's really open about his spiritual life. He just talks about it all the time. Facebook's about it all the time. And uh, I saw a post he put up the other night. He'd been to a church service on a Sunday evening. And then he posted and and he said something like, I really got part of the Jesus story tonight and I've turned my walker around a little bit and now I'm facing more towards the light. And I thought, that's a great description. Hey, it's like he's paddling his walker and he's just turned it a bit more. So now he's facing the right direction. Now he's facing towards God, at least a little bit more than he was. And I thought that's actually quite a good description for for what the psalm is describing. The righteous person is the one whose walker is facing towards God. You know, they are paddling towards God. Uh, Straight ahead, full steam, they are going towards God. That is the direction of their life. And they are in line with him and they're expressing his life in their life. And then, so the wicked is simply the contrast to that. The wicked is the person who is just facing away from God and they're paddling their waka away from God. Uh, They're living apart from Him. They're living independently from Him. They're living in opposition to Him, not necessarily anti, not necessarily actively opposing God, but they are just moving in a different direction. Their life is, is moving away from God, turning away from God. So you've got the righteous and the wicked, these two different kinds of lives. And then you find that those themes keep on resurfacing in the book of Psalms. Constantly, if you look through the Psalms, It's talking about the righteous are like this and the wicked are like this. Uh, This is what happens to the righteous. This is what happens to the wicked. And they just keep on coming up and up and up. So Psalm 1 is like this overture that sets before us these two paths or two types of people and and confronts us with this choice of who are you going to be? Which direction is your walker facing? Which direction are you paddling? Which direction is your life going? Is it the path of the righteous is it the path of the wicked? And you really have to answer that question right here at the outset of the Psalms. It's the gateway to the whole thing. That's the, that's the choice that Psalm 1 confronts us with. And most of this Psalm is taken up describing the righteous person. It doesn't spend much time talking about the wicked person because well, that's not the way God wants us to go. Most of it is spent talking about who the righteous person is and what the righteous life is like. And there's one image that this psalm uses to describe the righteous person, the person who is facing fully towards God. And it's not a walker. It's an image right in the middle of the psalm, Psalm 3. It's the image of a, uh, sorry, verse 3. It's the image of a tree. It talks about this person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. I don't know a lot about trees. Uh, I'm no expert in trees, so I don't. I don't bring a lot of field knowledge to this um, particular image. Uh, I remember years ago we had some friends that got us a fake tree in our house because they knew that we weren't very good at looking after trees. So they thought fake tree. That's a safe bet. And I still managed to kill that. Um, I managed to break the fake tree. So I cannot be trusted with trees or shrubs, plants of any kind. But I know enough to know this is a picture of a pretty healthy tree. Right? You don't, know, don't need to know much about trees to know that. Here's a picture of a, of a really healthy, thriving tree. It's planted beside a stream of clean water. It's got these flourishing, healthy leaves, lush green leaves. And it's a fruitful tree, bears fruit, In season. So, this is a tree that is really healthy, it's flourishing, and it's thriving. And that's a picture of the righteous person. That's a picture of the person whose life is turned fully towards God, who's paddling their walker fully towards Him. It's a picture of a person who has a thriving faith. And the mark of that person is that their life is fruitful. They're bearing fruit in their lives. And for Christians, all that means, what that means, is simply that over time, our lives are becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what it means. What it means to bear fruit, that our lives are becoming more like Jesus in the way that we relate to God and connect with Him more and more deeply, becoming more like Jesus. In in the way, in, in who we are within ourselves, who we are when no one's watching, we're becoming more like Jesus. In who we are to other people, how we connect and relate to other people. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to bear fruit. That's what it means to be fruitful. And so this is a picture of a fruitful person. It's a picture of the righteous person. It's the picture of a a healthy fruit tree. And and the psalm is great because it doesn't just set that picture there and say, now be like that, but it gives us these steps that we can take. So it says, if that's the kind of life that you desire, if that's really the kind of person that you want to be, that have a flourishing, healthy, vibrant faith, becoming more like Jesus, becoming the righteous person. If that's who you want to be, here's a couple of steps you can take. Because I think probably a lot of us look at that picture and maybe we desire that, but we also know our lives don't look a lot like that. I think a lot of the time, we don't really have a thriving faith. We've maybe just got a surviving faith. We just kind of, we've got a faith, it's there. We've got a basic commitment, but there's not much more to it, not much going on. But if you look at that picture of that healthy fruit tree beside the streams of living water and you realize that's who I want to be, then this psalm can help you because it gives us two very practical steps or two practices, two habits, that if we embed these in our lives, they will carry us forward towards becoming that person who has a thriving and flourishing faith. So that's what I want to look at, these two things that the psalm puts before us, two practices that we can establish in our lives that help us become these healthy and righteous People with a thriving faith facing towards God. So let me explain them both to you, unpack them a little bit. The first one is found in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Now, by the way, just that very first word in the psalm, blessed, it's the same or the equivalent word in Greek that Jesus uses to start the Beatitudes. So you know where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on and so on. It's that same equivalent word. And there's a connection between the two. You can think of Psalm 1 as being like the Old Testament version of the Beatitudes. Jesus is describing what the blessed life looks like, what it really means to be blessed, what it means to be blessed by God. And this Psalm is describing what it means to be blessed by God. Different language, different images, different points in the biblical story, but the same kind of idea. What does a truly blessed life really look like? That's what's being described. So blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. I love the way that the message translation translates those three phrases. It says, you don't hang out at sin saloon You don't slink along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. (laughs) That's great. I know a few people that have graduated from there. So really what that verse is describing, three types of people here, the wicked and sinners and mockers. And they're really all just one type of person. There's not much point trying to analyze each type. They're all just this composite picture of a certain type of person. And it is the person, as we just talked about before, who is facing away from God. That's the person that's being described. I mean, the words sound like these are going to be really horrible people, mockers and sinners and the wicked. But in reality, they're often not horrible people at all. They're not terrible people. They're not necessarily immoral people at all. They're simply people who are facing away from God and who are living their lives away from God. They're paddling in a different direction. They are not facing Him. These these can be some of the nicest people that you've ever met. They're people you work with. They're people you live next door to. There may be people in your family. They're in your friendship circles. They're at your gym. Their kids go to your kid's school. You know, they're in your lives. These are just people whose walkers are traveling in a different direction to yours. They are facing away from God, and they are journeying in a different direction. That's what's being described. So let's not think about terrible people, just people that are kind of living apart from God. I bumped up against this kind of mindset um, a little while ago. I spoke at a conference down in Waikanae, a student life conference, and uh, this was—I did a couple of sessions at the conference, and then one afternoon, all the Christian students that are there, they all go out sharing their faith in the local community. But there's also a small group of non-Christian students at the conference. So while all the Christians are going out sharing their faith, the, they have a parallel stream for the non-Christian students, and there was about eight or nine of them. So I was on this panel. Um, me and one other guy, Jeremy, who were facilitating this discussion among these non-Christian students that had turned up to this largely Christian conference. And it was just a question and answer session. So they were asking questions and we were answering. And then we were asking some questions and they were answering. And there was this one guy there who described himself as an atheist. And he said, the only reason I'm at this conference is I just want to make sure I've heard both sides of the story before I definitely decide that I'm an atheist. Uh, But as we talked, it sort of became apparent that he was still kind of investigating and he was still kind of figuring things out. But he said at one point, uh, I'm going to just look into this whole thing. And then if I decide that God is worthy of my worship, I will decide then to follow him. And Jeremy, (laughs) who's at the back there, asked him, I think you said something along the lines of, so you are going to be God's judge. Is that right? (laughs) And the guy basically said, "Yeah, that's right." Uh, he said, "I will determine whether God is worthy of my worship, and then if He is, I will I will decide that." And and you just had the sense that even if this guy invites God into his life, it's still this mentality: "I'm in charge." You know, that's the fundamental thing that's going on. It's like God might be a part of the picture here, but I'm still calling the shots here. This is still going to be a self directed thing, not a God-directed thing. And it's still the same kind of mindset that this psalm is describing. Even for people that might have some kind of religious view or some kind of relationship with God, it's this way of thinking where I'm still in charge. It's God on my terms if I have God in my life at all. It's God at my level or a little bit below my level. So I'm still calling the shots. And it's still fundamentally a self-driven, self-governed, self oriented self-directed life, which is possible to have, even with God in the picture. So that's what the psalm is describing when it talks about these these people. And when it talks about the way that we should respond to these people, it tells us we should not walk in step with the wicked. We should not stand in the way that sinners take. We should not sit in the company of mockers. Now that sounds quite harsh because it sounds like it's telling us not to have anything to do with them. It sounds like it's saying, just cut yourself off from anyone who's apart from God, who's not following God. It sounds like we shouldn't even be associating with those kinds of people. But you need to remember, if this this was saying, don't have anything to do with people who don't share your faith, Jesus would have fallen woefully short of this psalm, wouldn't he? I mean, if this was just simply giving us a blanket prohibition against hanging out with anyone who was not seeking God or not pursuing God? Jesus himself, because Jesus hung out with all sorts of people who were far from God, all sorts of people who were traveling in a totally different direction. He hung out with prostitutes, with thieves, with gluttons and drunkards, and with plenty of so-called righteous people who weren't actually righteous at all, called themselves righteous, and they were just self-righteous people. They were traveling just as far from God. Jesus didn't have a problem hanging out with those people. So this psalm is not saying to us, don't have any contact with people. who don't share your faith. It's not about association. It's about immersion. It's just simply saying, be careful. Because we can immerse ourselves so deeply in relationships with people who are traveling in a totally different direction to us, that over time, they can influence our faith. They can dilute our faith. That's just a reality. We never think it's going to happen. We never do. We get into these social circles, have these relationships with non-Christians, and we're kind of in these communities of people and colleagues and so on and so on. And we think we are going to be the positive influence. We think my light is going to shine, and I'm going to rub off on them, and it's going to be great. But often, if we're honest, what happens is that they rub off on us. And I don't know exactly why. I wonder whether it's because it's just easier for people to be influenced downhill than it is for people to be influenced uphill. But So often what happens is the Christian in that context, their faith becomes weakened by the group that they're a part of. And it just happens over time. You're just hanging out with people, and you're invested in these relationships with people who have got no time for God. God's not in the picture for them at all. And over time what happens is their values start to rob off on you. The things that they value, the things they prioritize, start to become the things you prioritize. The things that drive them in life start to become the things that drive you in life. Their worldview starts to become your worldview, and we don't see it happening. We don't notice it happening until we wake up one day and we realize our faith is just a flicker of what it used to be. And there's many reasons for that, but one of them can be the company we keep, and the relationships that we really allow to have an effect on us. And you notice that do you notice the sequence of the verbs in this verse it goes from walking to standing, to sitting. And isn't that what happens so often with our faith? You know, you're walking along, you start with a good stride, and, you, and you're moving towards God, and things are good, and you're growing in your faith. But then over time, kind of just slows down, and you end up just sort of standing in your faith. And then you're just sitting. You're not going anywhere. You're just stagnant. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe this morning some of you are just in that place and you realize, yeah, I kind of used to have this. I used to be growing. And then it just somehow, maybe you can't even put your finger on it, but you just slow down. And now, if you're honest with yourself, your faith is just stagnant. It's just nothing really there. You still have that base level commitment maybe, but you're not flourishing. You're not thriving in your faith. You're just plateaued. You're not going anywhere. You've become like this person. And it may be, That you're immersed in this social environment that has squeezed you and molded you and shaped you and eroded your faith over time. And so, the antidote to that, the obvious implication, is that we immerse ourselves in healthy Christian community. Now, that's not saying that you go and cut off all these other relationships, not at all. It's important that we're invested in relationships with non-Christians. But it's saying that equally, we need to be, if we're going to be healthy, thriving Christians, we need to be immersed in healthy Christian community. You think about that tree planted by the streams of water. Part of what those streams of water represent is healthy, spiritual relationships. And we need to be planted in those kinds of relationships if we are going to thrive. You need to be in relationships, have some brothers and sisters in Christ around you that can actually encourage you in your faith. People that can pray for you. People that can walk alongside you. People who just by being in your life are a good and healthy spiritual influence because you know they are facing in the same direction and you know they're traveling along the same road. And the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. We sharpen each other's faith. We're spending time with like-minded people people. You know, I find it so frustrating when I talk to people. I had a couple of experiences re- recently, people who are in marriage crisis. Marriage is busting up, and I'm trying to encourage them to fight for their marriage. And they've got people in their workplace just saying to them, hey, just walk away. Just walk, and, and I mean, in a sense, what do you expect, right, from people that don't have a biblical worldview? But the dominant voice in their life, voices, are just saying, just give up. Why would you stick with this? why would you? Just walk away. And so you're always trying to counter these strong voices because they've got themselves immersed in these social relationships that are pulling them in another direction. We need to be planted and anchored and established in healthy Christian community. And we need to do it before we hit those bumpy times in life. Because when the bullets start firing, man, you need some brothers and sisters around you. And at that point, it's going to be too late to do it quickly. You need to develop those friendships now so that you've got that support, not just when you need it, all the time, but especially when life gets hard. If you don't have those kinds of relationships, if you don't have healthy and strong Christian friendships in this church or somewhere else, can I encourage you, be intentional about that, be proactive about that, pray and ask God to bring those people into your life. Here at Shaw, the best way to do it is to join a life group. It's a community of people that can become an encouragement for you, people that will pray with you, journey with you, walk alongside you. And by the way, let me just say, some of you, I know, some of you that are parents of young kids, you haven't joined a life group yet because you you think that the kids, it's not going to work with the kids. Look, we have young kids and we're in a life group. You can make it work. We've got a life group where the women meet one week and the guys meet the next week and we just alternate it like that. You can make it work. You have to be a little bit creative, but don't let your kids be the excuse for you not getting into Christian community. There are ways to make it happen. So come and talk to us. If you don't know where to start with all this, talk to me, talk to Michael, talk to one of the leaders or pastors in the church, and we'll help you become established in those relationships. This is one of the key ingredients. If you want to become a thriving Christian with a healthy faith, walking in the way of the righteous, like that healthy tree, big part of it is healthy Christian relationships, being deeply planted in those relationships. They will help you grow. All right, then there's a second thing this psalm talks about, a second practice, and it's in verse 2. It says, But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, when this psalmist talks about the law of He's really just focusing on the first five books of the Bible. That's what the law was in this time. But for us, now that we have the whole Bible as God's revealed word, we can refer to the whole Bible as the law of God. Not that it's all just full of laws and rules, but we can say the whole Bible is God's law. So really what this verse is calling us to do is to meditate on Scripture, to meditate on God's word. Now, I know for some people, especially for some Christians, the idea of meditation, meditation's is like a dirty word for some people. Because it conjures up all these images, doesn't it? I mean, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of meditation? Someone sitting on a mountain, you know, cross-legged, fingers in this kind of position maybe. I don't know what that means. But they're, you know, levitating. And this chanting, muttering, mumbling something to themselves. And we think that's just weird. That's fruity, kind of this mystic, new agey stuff. I don't want anything to do with that. And we think that's all meditation is, so we just completely write it off. We've got to be very careful as Christians when we just say, oh, meditation, that's not even biblical because, hello, it's right here in Psalm 1. You can't avoid it, and it's not just here. It's many times throughout the Bible. Meditating is mentioned. It's something we're encouraged to do. But here's the difference. There are many different types of meditation today, and some of them are a little bit fruity. But there is a big difference between Christian meditation and other forms of meditation. With a lot of other forms of meditation, the whole idea is that you are emptying your mind of something or everything. And you're trying to get everything out of your mind and be completely clear-minded and sort of have nothing there. Whereas Christian meditation is the opposite. With Christian meditation, we're not trying to empty our minds of something. We're trying to fill our minds with something. Now, we're trying to get rid of distracting thoughts and so on, but only so that we can fill our minds with something, and that something is God and His Word. If you do a word study on meditation in the Bible, you see time and again we're called to meditate on God. Meditate on the works of God. And meditate on His Word. Meditate on this book. Day and night. That's what we are commanded to do. And when you think about meditating on the Bible, it kind of feels like it's a very passive sort of thing. It's a very quiet, kind of reflective, passive sort of exercise. But the word itself is really interesting. The word meditates is the word, the Hebrew word haga. And interestingly, the literal meaning of that word is to mutter or growl. That's weird. What does that have to do with meditation? Well, look at this verse here. In Isaiah 31, 3, it says, As a great lion growls, and that's the word. That's the same word that's used here in Psalm 1. It's translated meditates here. Here it's translated growls, Haga. a great lion over its prey. So what that verse is saying is if you think about a lion that's just killed some animal, and it's got a carcass there, and it's feasting on this carcass, chewing away on this carcass and gnawing at it and ripping the flesh apart, That, what that lion is doing to that carcass is meditation. It's the same word. That lion is meditating on its prey. Now, bring it a little bit closer to home because not many of us have probably seen that firsthand. But think about a dog with a nice, juicy bone. Right? A lot of you have seen this. You have a dog with this, this lovely, juicy, meaty bone, and you think about the way that dog treats the bone. It's like this playful exercise where he's chewing it, he's gnawing on it, he's just getting all, every little morsel of taste off that bone, he's kind of turning it over, maybe leaving it aside for a little while and coming back to it later. And you know how dogs, when they do that, they have this little groaning, little noise that they do. It's not the angry growl, it's the kind of playful growl. It's, the, it's, the, it's just this lovely delight that's going on with this dog as he's chewing over the bone. That process, what that dog is doing to that bone is meditating on the bone. Now, that might be a bit of a different way to think about meditation than what you've thought about because we think, odds oh, is this quiet, private little practice. But in fact, what we, are, what we are supposed to do to the Bible is what that dog does to the bone, right? Not literally eat it, but we are supposed to devour the Bible in a similar way to what the dog and the lion do with those bones and with that carcass, right? So you're starting to get the picture here. This is actually quite a lively sort of exercise. We are supposed to be turning Scripture over in our minds, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. This is what we're doing. We're gnawing on it. We're chewing on it. We're savoring it. We kind of maybe put it aside for a minute and then come back to it. And we're just getting every little nutrient out of it that we can, every last little morsel. We're just sucking all the goodness and all the juices out of it. That's what we're supposed to be doing with God's Word. It's not just this clinical, scientific, sterile kind of process of Bible study. It's something that should engage our whole being. It's something that should consume us. It's something we actually should enjoy doing, like that dog with his bone. That's what Scripture meditation looks like or should look like. And so practically, what does it mean? Well, it means, <clears throat> for starters, putting some time aside for it, ideally every day. Putting aside maybe 10 or 15 minutes. You can't meditate in a hurry. That's just an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. You need to put aside some time. If you've never tried this, if you've never done it, I would try it for 10 minutes at first. And a great place to meditate is the Psalms. So take a Psalm. I've got a devotional book that gives me a Psalm each week. And that's a great way of doing it because then you're coming back to the same psalm, like a dog coming back to that bone each day for seven days. You're seeing new things. You're thinking about it during the week, and it's just staying with you rather than moving moving away too quickly. So maybe if, if you're not engaged in this practice at all, start this week, 10 minutes a day, with Psalm 1. And then next week, Psalm 2. And you sit down with Psalm 1 tomorrow morning or whenever you're going to do this and just start by praying and say, God, I pray you'd show me something from your word today. Speak to me through your word today. Meet me in your word so that you're not just doing this as as an intellectual exercise. It's not just a head trip, but you're actually expecting to meet God in the pages of his word and hear from him. And you're coming at it prayerfully and with that sense of expectation. And then read the psalm and read it slowly, read it carefully, read it thoughtfully. Maybe stop if there's a particular word or phrase that catches you. Turn it over in your head. Turn it over in your mind a little bit. Put the Bible down. Just have a think about that for a little while. You know how often you you read through the Psalms and there's that word selah that pops up often and nobody quite knows what it means. It's just there intermittently through all the Psalms. Someone suggested that it means guitar solo. No one really knows. But it probably means something more like just pause and think about what you've just read. And so whenever you see selah, that's a good time just to stop Think about that last phrase. What does that tell me about God? What does that tell me about me? What does that tell me about life? And then chew it over some more and gnaw away at it and come back and reread it, read it out loud, read it in your head, whatever. Just think about that dog with that bone and you be like that with Psalm 1. That's biblical meditation. And I guarantee you that if you make this a habit in your life, it will help you grow. It'll help you grow as a Christian. You're not always going to come away from those times feeling different. Please don't go into this expecting some big emotional rush or experience. We talk often about how experience is not a barometer of our faith. Emotions are not a barometer of our faith. Sometimes you'll feel nothing. Sometimes you'll feel as if God's Word is just breaking open to you in new ways, and it's wonderful, but sometimes you won't. That's okay. Don't worry about that. But just be assured that if you embed this practice in your life, over time it'll help you grow because God will speak to you through his word. God will get his word into you. God will get his life into you. God will shape you and mold you. God will provide the nourishment, the nutrients, the spiritual nutrients that you need to grow as a healthy, thriving Christian. So I encourage you, commit to this practice. If you've never done it before, start today, start tomorrow. Get this practice into your life. It is one of the primary ways in which we can grow. Delighting in the scriptures, meditating on this book, day and night. It's who we're called to be. So if we engage in these two practices, one's a very communal practice, being planted in Christian community. One's a very personal practice, meditating on Scripture, meditating on the Bible. But if we develop these two habits in our lives, they are going to help us. They're not the only two things we could talk about, but they're the two things this psalm focuses on. They are going to help us become like that tree planted by the streams of living water because what those practices will do is they will push your spiritual roots down. That's what makes a tree healthy. It's got a healthy root system pushed down deep into the ground, pushed all the way down to that stream of living water so that it is able to suck up the oxygen it needs, suck up the nourishment it needs, suck up the nutrients it needs. If you've just got shallow roots as a Christian, if your root system is poor, you are not going to receive the nutrients that you need to be a thriving follower of God. You're not going to be a fruitful Christian. But if your root system is healthy, deeply planted in Christian community, deeply planted in the Word of God and the righteousness of Jesus, then God Himself will enable you over time to be grown in your faith, strengthened and sustained so that you bear fruit as a Christian. You're not just going to bear fruit by going out there and trying harder and trying to be a really good Christian. That would be the equivalent of standing in front of a fruit tree and yelling at it and expecting it to produce fruit. That's crazy. And yet how often we just expect our lives or expect ourselves to produce Christian qualities, but our root system is weak. When a tree has a healthy root system, producing fruit will be the most natural thing in the world. When a Christian is deeply rooted and established in God and in his people, producing fruit will be the most healthy and natural thing in the world. So focus on those spiritual roots, pushing them down deep. And so I just encourage you as we finish today. I want you to think about what kind of tree would describe your life if you had to draw it out right now. Think about your Christian life. Think about your spiritual journey. If you had to draw that tree, what would it be like right now? Not not the one you want to be. That's here in Psalm one. Just think about where you are now. How is that root system? How strong are the branches? How healthy are the leaves? How much fruit is being produced? And then I want you to think about that tree in Psalm 1. And if that genuinely describes the kind of person you want to be, maybe it doesn't, okay, but if that describes the kind of person you want to be, a person who is facing fully towards God, paddling towards Him, healthy tree bearing fruit, healthy leaves, then I would ask you, how are you going in those two practices? How well established are you in Christian community? Have you got those relationships? Are you willing to take steps to build those relationships around you? And how are you going in meditating on God's Word, immersing yourself in it, consuming God's Word and being consumed by it? Those two practices, over time, will make a difference in your life. Over time, they will help you grow. Over time, they will bear fruit in your life to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we just think about that image now and we just get it in our heads, that image of that beautiful tree planted beside the waters, so fruitful, so healthy. And we just want to say to you, God, help us to grow. Help us to become like that tree. Father, I pray that it wouldn't be anything to do with our own merits, our own goodness. I want to pray, God, that from beginning to end, this would be a work of your grace in our lives. Lord, more than anything, we want to be planted in you, so deeply established in you. But God, would you just bring before us now the steps that we can take so that our walker can turn just a little bit more towards you this morning, so that we can push our spiritual roots down a little deeper than they have been before. Lord, we don't want this just to remain a good idea. We don't want this just to stay as good intentions. We want to grow we want to be disciples. We want to be more fully devoted followers of you than we are now. And so we want to pray, Jesus, that you would give us strength. and Just refresh us by your Spirit. Help us to put other things aside, distractions, whatever. And just show us, Lord, the path that we can walk in so that we would become those righteous men and women that your Word talks about. Not that we have righteousness of our own. It comes from Jesus. But God, we want to be counted among the righteous. We want to turn fully towards you. We want to walk with you. And we want to live out the life of Jesus for the world to see. So strengthen us and support us, God, as we move forward in your grace and with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry,